This is On The Tee Golf New Zealand Podcast, hosted by Tom Hyde and Brendan Telfer. Proudly presented by Podcasts New Zealand and Gorilla Voice Media. Hello again and welcome to On The Tee, our fortnightly look at the world of golf from a Kiwi perspective. I'm Brendan Telfer, along with my co-host Tom Hyde, who's been here long enough that we call him an honorary Kiwi. We just wish we could get rid of that lovely deep American accent that he's got. How I envy you, Tom. Anyway, Tom, nice to have you on board again. Thank you, Brendan. Good to be back. Um, we're going to talk technology today, which I suppose, who knows, maybe it might help your game as well as mine a little. Uh, everything will help my game <laughs> yeah. right now, yeah. mate. Yeah. Uh, just a reminder that, of course, we do come to you in association with JK's World of Golf out there at Auckland International Airport and Nixon Road, and it's about a Bryson DeChambeau three-wood from the nearest departure gate at Auckland Airport. So check out their great deals. They always have these great deals on their website, jksworldofgolf.co.nz. And if you are in Auckland looking for a round of golf at a very fine course, can we recommend to you the Akarana Golf Club in Dominion Road, just 10 minutes from the airport and about the same distance from the centre of the city. And they too have some great online deals, some great green fee online deals at akaranagolf.co. .nz. Well, today we're going to talk technology. Some would say it's the elephant in the room. Others will tell you that it's been their great saviour, uh, enabling golfers in their senior years, in senior years to still be competitive out there on the golf course. But there are others, including nonetheless the likes of Jack Nicholas, who will say, wait, 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 too much technology. Time to just put a pause on technology and in some cases I think Nicholas is even suggesting that they roll back the technology so the golf ball won't travel as far. So the game has gone through nothing short of a revolution in terms of golf club equipment over the last 25 years. You think of all of the terms that are now part of the common language of golf. Graphite shafts, titanium heads, hybrid clubs, adjustable heads, putters coming at us in all shapes and sizes, and the brands, the big berthers, the Pro V1s, etc. This is the new face, the new language of golf. So Does this mean we're all better golfers than we were 25 years ago as a result of having all of this technology alongside of us and in our bag on the golf course? Well, I'm not so sure of that. I I don't know about you, Tom. I mean, what's happened to your handicap over the last 25 years? Well, it's uh, gone up slightly, (laughs) but not because of technology. It's because of uh, my swing and my lack of practice. And it's it's as... Somebody once said it's all about practice, and if you don't practice, then your handicap is probably not going to go lower despite the equipment you use. But I would say, Bryn, I think that uh, nobody should be cynical about the changes in technology. For me, the introduction of the titanium, the Big Bertha way back, Mm -hmm. moving from persimmon, cavity back irons with Mm – flexible graphite shafts have really made it more fun. Mm. That seems to be the, uh, I guess, prevailing opinion anyway. uh, To shed some light on this subject, we're joined today by Simon Thomas, a man with broad experience in the game of golf, who's witnessed the revolution in equipment from his own playing days, and that uh, revolution that started, I suppose, with the end of the persimmon head and the steel shaft to today's fancy state of equipment. Um, And Simon, as a career as a playing pro, then for many years a teaching pro, and presently head of the Golf Academy at St. Peter's College in Cambridge, which is turning up some very fine young prospects. Uh, so the latest technology, I suspect, from his own professional point of view, is something that he has to keep close tabs on. He's just come in from the coaching bay, and he joins us now. Uh, Simon, a very good afternoon to you, and thank you for your time. 
Thank you, Brendan, and uh, good day, Tom. Hi, Simon. Uh, nice to have you. Thank you. So just a, a general question to start with here, Simon. Has to- is technology, and the reference we just made to it, has it made the game easier for both the amateur and the professional, do you think? Uh, well, yeah, I, th- I think it has. It's, it's made it more accessible for more people, um, and obviously the top players are, are making it look easier and easier almost year on year. Um, the handicaps probably wouldn't indicate that's the case. I don't think the average handicaps budged that much in the last sort of 40 or 50 years. No, but, um, I, th- oh, but I think what's happened is that courses are harder. I know courses that I played 25 years ago are now a lot more difficult, and I, I suspect this is because of technology that clubs are putting in more bunkers, are narrowing the fairways, making greens more difficult to get to. Uh, well, I, I would definitely agree that the, in, the way that courses have become more difficult is probably more to do with green speed than anything, because that's gone hand in hand with the technology. Mm. I mean, mm. the the agronomy's improved and the quality of greens have improved. And you go to some courses now. I, I was down at Wairaki a, a few weeks or a couple of months back, and um, they were frighteningly fast. So if you've got any issues on the greens, it's going to find you out, and it makes chipping difficult, makes your approach play difficult to actually get the ball close. So I, I guess that sort of counted some of the distance gains. Your days as a playing pro, did you travel, as it were, through that period where uh, clubs went from basically persimmon uh, heads and steel shafts into graphite shafts and bigger heads? Yeah, well, my amateur days were grew up playing just blades and, and persimmon blocks. Uh, and then the early days of me playing pro-ams in New Zealand was, was probably the same. And then just the early stainless steel. Um, so the likes of the tailor-made Pittsburgh persimmon, they sort of came out, I'm, I'm guessing, in the in the 80s, and that transformed things uh, significantly from um, just consistency of what you could do with a golf ball. Uh, and then, yeah, obviously then that transition is just the evolution of golf equipment has continued from, from stainless steel heads to the, gra- uh, the, the graphite titanium combos we now see and the size, which they finally limited a few years ago to 460cc. Uh, but, yeah, there's been a massive um, transformation. I mean, you, you've only got to put a persimmon block down alongside, you know, I, I use uh, TSI. I put it down alongside my TSI, and it, it looks like it's a three-wood in comparison. Mm. Did it improve your game, technology? Um, I wish I could say, yes, my short game was always an issue. So <laughs> they haven't made the hole bigger, which is what I'm waiting for. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, I, like, I, I mean – I'm not as mo- I'm mid fifties now, so I'm not as mobile, not as flexible. I don't play anywhere near enough, um, but I can still go and enjoy the game. Uh, right. And I'm sure the technology is probably a big chunk of that. Your miss hits are going to be uh, come off a lot better, so you just feel better about your game in general. Um, I think if I had to go out with a set of persimmons and and a set of blades now, I probably wouldn't enjoy it quite so much. Mm. I mean, I've done it for novelty, but uh, I wouldn't do it week in week out uh, just for the hell of it. Yeah, I think you touched on a really important point, uh, Simon, in terms of the overall growth of the game globally is that <clears throat> while technology may not lower your handicap, it may. My, my argument is always it will lower your handicap if you practice a lot, and which amateurs don't because we've got other jobs yeah. to do. But it has made the, the sport more accessible to more people, and, and I think that's a credit to the club manufacturers who are trying to do their best to make, you know, so, so if you're a single-figure handicap, you can play blades and you can 
shape shots and you can do all kinds of fancy stuff with short game but really that's not most of us most of us want to go out and have fun and at least maybe on a round of 18 holes hit a couple good tee shots hit a couple good chip shots get out of a bunker nicely and i think that game improvement clubs as they call them today are actually for real it's not just a marketing gimmick they actually do improve the game for the average hack who doesn't have time to practice Oh, absolutely, definitely. I, I mean, I, I look at it, in some ways, a three-wood, for instance, has almost become obsolete because the modern drivers, if you've got the right loft in your hand, they're so much easier to hit than a three-wood off the tee. Yeah. Whereas when I was an amateur, um, three-wood was always like our second serve. It was our backup driving club. Mm. If the driver was misbehaving, we'd just drop straight back to three-wood. Mm. Um, you just don't see that. The, the, you know, the younger players now, they, they don't tend to hit a lot of three-woods off tees. And it, and that's possibly because a the drivers are easy, and if they don't need the driver, they'll, they'll just go and grab their hybrid or their driving iron and yeah. and launch that. Yeah, it's interesting because you know uh, I use a three wood off. I was using a three wood off the tee because I left my driver overseas in Dubai where I was living for a while because of control, right? But when I got yeah. my ping two fifty back, you know, I find out that the modern drivers actually allow for the kind of control that we used to think was only through the three woods. So I think that, again, the technology has helped uh, off the tee for the long game, the short game. And, uh, you know, and I, and I just I just find out that that is why more people enjoy the game, whether they're a high handicap. Or I know people with high handicaps, mate, that, Brendan, that just has as much fun as people with lower handicaps who might be stressful to keep their keep their game together. Well, you know? exactly. I, uh, I usually find that the lower the person's handicap, the less enjoyment they get out of the round because <laughs> yeah. if they're not hitting perfect shots every time. Yeah. I know some friends of mine, single figures, oh, my God, they hit these good shots and they're swearing and cursing because they know they, <laughs> they, they can hit a better. But anyway, yeah. so you mentioned the titanium heads there, Simon. So yeah. why did the RNA put this restriction on the size? Was, because is, was it a case the bigger the head, the further the ball goes, is it? Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember the exact data when they actually put a limit on the size, but it, it had got to the stage where driver club heads were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And and I'm guessing, um, you know, they introduced the COR rule, so, you know, the coefficient of restitution. Mm. So mm. The, the amount of basically flex on a face could only get to, I think it's 0.83. So, you, you, so you're not getting that much gain. And obviously the bigger the head was and the more the face was flexing. Right. And then the, the R&D guys tried to get around that with – all sorts of flex channels and, and different ways of trying to um, work out how they could operate the face more efficiently. And, and I guess that's been the big thing with R&D is that they can now tune things, they can test things, and, right. and the knowledge they have of what's actually happening as opposed to, you know, 20, 30 years ago, a lot of it was guesswork or assumptions or, and sometimes false assumptions. Now they're just a lot more at the pointy end of able to make things go go better, go faster. And I guess if you look at, like, yachting, you look at America's Cup yachting, how that's transformed with the technology they've introduced. It's kind of a similar thing. They, they're just better at what they do. So, yeah, I mean, what you were calling, Simon, remember, you may remember, Brian, when uh, Ellie Calloway introduced uh, a club, and that's it, the, they call it the coefficient yeah, of yeah. restitution, which is the trampoline effect. Yeah, on the face. And, yeah. of course, you know, they, they put a limit on it, and, and Calloway, Ellie, the old man who found it, he sued the USGA – 
and they had a big lawsuit that was going on. You remember that? Yeah, but I, I, About my, my understanding of it was that uh, the RNA put a ban on it, but initially the U.S. Golf Association didn't. And I can remember right. Colin Montgomery uh, doing his block one time when he travelled across the Atlantic to play in America, and he couldn't use his Callaway three wood, right. which he could use on the European tour, yeah. but he couldn't use in America. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, this is, a, guess, what happens when you start getting obsessed with technology. So what about the graphite shaft, Simon? Uh, what impact did that have? Well, it's, it's taken weight out of the shaft and be able to, they, they can just shift the weight around better. And obviously a lighter shaft or connection to the clubhead means you can move it faster. Mm. Uh, and that's been the big thing. In, in many ways, the same way that a, a graphite tennis racket compared to an old wooden one. I mean, it's going to power up because you can just shift that thing a lot quicker. So people who aren't necessarily as strong and able can still get it to move. And then you, their ability to uh, mess around with kick points and the flexes and, the, and the, you know, the actual weight of the shaft, you can get shafts all the way down to 40 grams, which is incredibly yeah, light. Yeah. Mm, mm, um, mm. You know, and if that fits your swing profile and your, the launch conditions you create, well, then you can start to optimise what you get from that golf club. Yeah. Now, I remember as a kid going in the pro shop and wanting a new driver. Uh, a, it was probably a 20 or 30-year-old club sitting in the barrel in the corner of the pro shop. You know, that's yeah. you know, if you yeah. wanted a McGregor persimmon, I've got one sitting in my bag at the moment. Yeah, 25 like, bucks, eh? <laughs> yeah, 25 bucks. And you, you took it out and you hit it, and if you couldn't hit it, you try to work out how to hit it. Yeah. It wasn't yeah, yeah. like you could go, oh, actually, can, can I take that shaft out and put a different shaft in, and can you add a little bit more loft, or can you turn the toe down a little bit? Or You just don't, you know, the tuning that goes in now is um, is incredible. And, you know, and, and the better players in particular who are fit for everything, um, they're not yeah. leaving anything to chance anymore. Yeah, you know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you touched on something. You said a magic word there, so I'm going to just pick up on it's fit, that, that they fit for everything. And here, Brent and I would also argue that um, with players, you know, equipment can improve your game, providing you get somebody maybe like Simon to look at your swing and do mm. some fitting so you're mm. getting the right flex on your shaft. I mean, I've, I know players with swing speeds of 85 – I've seen players, with, which is relatively slow, wanting a stiff flex, and it doesn't make any sense when you want to go to senior flex or something more. And so I would argue, your point, uh, I would like your viewpoint, Simon, on, on fitting and how important that is in conjunction with new technology. Oh, it's massive. Right. Um, you know, all of our better young players, I mean, that's the first thing when they get to a certain, well, if their parents can afford it, you fit them right the way through their teenage years. But for yeah. most, they wait till they kind of get to a level of, physical development where it now becomes um, financially manageable and, and that's it. You get set up for a set of clubs where, and especially with the big clubs, you know, the, the drivers and that and the three woods and the hybrids, yeah. the clubs that you rely on to get the ball underway off the tee, you can get those tuned in where, you, you know, you, you can't necessarily remove one side of the golf course. You can get pretty close to removing some of your real ugly shots. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can do that, then you can swing with more confidence. If you're not afraid of the snap hook, I remember – Standing on the, you know, at Bell McEwen where I grew up in the Otago straight play champs. And the best players in the province would stand up there on the first tee in the opening round. And you would see a few cold tops. You would see some pop skies. You would see some snap hooks into the trees down on yep. 18. Yeah. You just don't see that sort of shot anymore at junior events or at senior, you know, at amateur events. Yeah. They're not that bad. And, and, and this is the, te- this is the, the technology point. at work here. Well, because I don't think we were that bad players, but, you know, some of the best players in the province, you'd see some almighty horrendous shots. 
because mm. the, the 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 miss was a bad miss right whereas now the miss is a very functional miss if you've got the right club in your hands it's been fitted for you you can start to manage your misses I mean, do you worry about where technology is going that it's going to make the game too easy i mean now you can have these adjustable heads if you draw the ball or slice the ball you can fiddle around with a piece of weight in the head and it's going to counter uh, these errant shots you make i'm wondering if technology continues at this pace um, well, obviously the issue about whether the golf courses will be long enough is one thing, but um, do you worry that it's, it might get too easy? Uh, well, no, I don't. And, and to be honest, the adjustability and all that has been around for over 100 years. I've got, I've got a classic book of classic golf clubs that I, I got off John Evans years ago. And um, it's got, you know, it's got, fle- it's got spring-loaded faces. Um, it's got adjustable lofts. It's got adjustable angles. I mean, what they did back at the turn of the around 1900 to 1930 with hickory and all that, they were they were messing around. They were adding lead pellet into heads. They were trying to weight up parts okay. of the club. Okay. So what we've done is we've taken that sort of those sort of thoughts, and we've managed to take them into a whole new direction and really refine what they you know some of the ideas those guys had as far as getting too easy at at club level absolutely not the easier we can make the game the more people are going to get playing the game Mm. Uh, and the longer we'll keep people in the game okay let's move on to this very divisive area the golf ball uh i seem to recall you need to correct me here around about 1990 ballata balls were all a rage weren't they um now what are these balls that we're playing with now the pro v1s and the solid core um what's the difference between them say the tightless ball today and ballata ball of 1990 uh 1990 would have probably been something like the tall yeah, so the difference was there you, you had a liquid rubber-filled sack that they used to freeze and then they used to wind, rubber, literally rubber banding around it, and then they'd encase it with a ballata cover. Um, it was felt great, felt like butter on the club face, not very durable. Uh, if you hit one in the bunker or you caught one with a leading edge of your weed, you were going to be replacing it if you could get it off the club face. <laughs> um, so, mm. you know, they used to chop through golf balls. You know, better players chop through golf balls a lot, but – your average club player didn't use those balls. They were still using a top flight or a hot dot or a a status or a pinnacle or something like that. Um, Now you're dealing with, you know, since Pro-V came out in um, 2000, which ironically coincided pretty much with Tiger becoming the most dominant player on the planet, um, you've got multi-layered, you've got multi-core. So, you know, like the Pro-V is a dual core uh, with two different sorts of polymers. And then you've got an encasing, which is like a, a, explosive flex casing and then you've got the cover on top of that to give it the feel um so just the consistency of the ball is unbelievable um you just don't get duds in a pack okay i often hear people say the odd person might say to bit my club now you you guys shouldn't be using tightless pro v1s because you're not good enough is there any truth in that no not at all no i wouldn't no i disagree with that too mate yeah yeah yeah, no, Anyone I, can use a Pro V1. I mean, the only reason you wouldn't use a Pro V1, in my opinion, and obviously I'm a Titleist, I've played Titleist for years, I'd only not use a Pro V1 if I couldn't afford it. I needed to use an ADX or, or one of their other models. Mm. Um, you know, so, and, th- and that would be purely financial, not from a performance. Well, that was things, that you know? was my next question. Yeah. I was going to say that originally there was the Pro V1 that came out, and it was used by basically the majority of professional golfers on the major tours, um, and therefore it wasn't a ball that 
handicapped golfers could get the same kind of results with. So therefore, titleists, realising that there was a bit of a gap in their market here, uh, then started coming out with these variations of the Pro V1, which were designed for mid-handicapped golfers, weren't they? Uh, no, not so much mid-handicapped golfers. I think, again, their, their understanding of how the technology works. I mean, they're constantly working in R&D to improve the ball. But I think what we do know is, you know, people say, oh, you don't swing it fast enough to use a Pro V. It's like, well, you know, Jordan Spieth doesn't swing his 9-iron that fast either compared to his driver. Mm. So if it works for a driver, what, you know, so th- th- that, that argument was just a, a, a complete well, crock. Well, well, where are you then on this claim from Jack Nicklaus and others, quite a few leading golfers, I think even Rory McIlroy has commented on this, that the golf ball is travelling too far and that restrictions should be placed on its manufacturing and its construction so that the likes of the Bryson DeChambeau's and Rory McIlroy's and Dustin Johnson's won't be able to hit the ball any more than about 280, 290 yards. Is that a good thing? Um, Nicholas says it is. Well, yeah, yeah well, well, I don't disagree. The highest level it is starting to get, well, if not starting, it has been, it's, it's heading in the direction that is dangerous for a lot of the older courses. No doubt. I mean, I've I've been to Royal Melbourne a few times for events, and and I was there in the 90s or late 90s for events, or early 90s. And through the 90s, Royal Melbourne was quite a stern test off the tee. Now those guys just take some of those bunkers out mm. of play. Mm. Um, but but again, I, I think we've got two separate issues, and and I'm not necessarily saying we need a separate ball for the pros. But mm. what the pros are doing is a very small minority of the people that play play this game. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. we don't want to handicap those that are getting enjoyment from Saturday play or Thursday play or Tuesday play by saying, oh, we need to rein back all golf balls. Now, if, if the tour want to have a different discussion and say, we've got to report where maybe we need to look at a uniform ball and it needs to have some sort of level of restriction, well, that that's for the tour to decide. Because ultimately, those players work for the tour and the tour works for the players it's a bit of an an interesting setup but what jack's saying is relevant for those guys it's completely irrelevant at club level yes i mean there is this talk with this big fancy word isn't it bifurcation that uh, you have a ball for pros and a ball for amateurs but in in practical terms that can't work can it what happens when uh, promising amateurs or top amateurs play in professional tournaments what ball would they use yeah, well, the tra- and that would be, and that's been one of the arguments against that coming in is that you know if you're a US college player or a top amateur, and even transitioning into the professional ranks, you're now having to use a different ball. Mm. Um, now, I guess someone who's involved in motor racing would go, well, hang on, if you go from Formula Three to Formula Two to Formula One, you're transitioning from different vehicles with completely different feels and different performances. So I guess you you then got you go well actually if they can do it, why the hell can't we do it? And it may mean that if, if they went that way, the transitioning players would have to be given a period of grace to kind of get up to speed, you know, so it wouldn't be brutal like, you, oh, well, you lost your card this year. Mm. It may need a, you may get a card for three seasons to give you a chance to, to, to sort of modify your game. I mean, it's, like always, it's not, a, it's not a black and white discussion or argument or debate, mm. even though people try to make it black and white, because the top players are also, I mean, you look at what DeChambeau did to his body. Um, you know, and, and what Rory's doing in the gym or Colin Morikawa does in the gym or, or John Rahm does in the gym, they are working flat out to be as strong and as fast and as mobile as they can be. So the equipment's one part of the debate. The other part is, what, do we stop them going to the gym? You know, no, the, the no, obviously stuff. not. No. So yeah. just getting back, yeah. getting back to the ball for a final thought here. Yeah. So for the average golfer, club golfers like Tom and I, um, is there really any difference between, say, a Titleist ball, a TaylorMade ball, a Strixon ball or a Bridgestone ball or a Callaway um, ball? 
well, you go with what you prefer. I think. I mean, try try them out. I mean, I I would. Um, and again, I'm disclaimer. I am tightness aligned, and therefore, I'm I'm probably got some bias in here. But as far as consistency of product and, and performance, then I would always go down that line. I'd always seek a tightness ball, and I have done since I was a kid. Yeah. Now, partly biased, but partly what you you know, if you're a club golf, you go well. Let's try a few different balls out for a few rounds. Right. And work out what works, yeah, yeah, or if you've got the advantage, get on a launch monitor okay, at your okay. local. But, yeah, but where it gets out. but where it gets really confusing here, Simon, with your theory, with all due respect, is that okay? So I pick out a tailor-made ball out of my bag. It's a new one. I might have found it the previous day when I was playing, and so I'm, <laughs> I'm teeing off with a tailor-made ball, and, and yeah. I hit a few good shots. I think oh, I'll stay with this tailor-made, but in actual fact, it's the swing that's produced the good shot, not the ball, hasn't it? Oh well, possibly, yeah. And that, and that's so why, why would why should you get hung up about the ball just because you've had a few good shots with it? Because it's telling you more about your swing than the quality of the ball, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but there's one factor in the swing. If I can interrupt here, yeah. is feel. And for me, I've tried a lot of different balls. You know, editing equipment, if you yeah. will, for the cut. Mm-hmm. And you try a lot of different balls, and there's a definitely a different feel for the different balls okay. you hit. The the coating that is the polyurethanes might be harder or softer and so i end up playing the pro v1 because it's got a feel that makes me feel i'm playing better whereas i've tried other balls and they technically they may be just as good i'm Mm. sure they are but you know i think as as simon's right you know you've got to try them and when you do try them it's not how far you hit it's how it feels when you make contact i think that's Mm. that's Mm. the variable i I can relate to that too um Mm. But I'm, yeah, I mean, I'd also say if you can get on a on a launch one and find out what the spin rates look like. Yeah. Because, I mean, different balls spin differently and launch differently. So it, it's also got to fit your eye, you know, like – and it's not just a better player thing. Players like to see a ball take off on a certain launch and with right. a certain shape in the flight. And, you know, we've all seen golf balls, especially back growing up with tall balladas, that would take off low and then – Look like they're mm. climbing their way to heaven. Yeah, yeah. rise up. Uh, yeah, and you exactly. knew the spin rate. Yeah, the rise ball. It was like, oh my god, into the wind that went nowhere. So if if a ball's doing that, it's probably not the right ball for you, assuming you hit it okay. Right. And you know, that, and that's the beauty of technology with launch monitors and and all that stuff. You can you can find somewhere near you that you can go. So look, I just want to hit some, trial some different balls, get some idea of what my spin rate looks like, or what the carry distance like for me, or even what my dispersions like, because different balls will create different dispersions. Right. And again, not, yeah. I, I would I would back Titleist because of the consistency through the dozen. Yeah. Um, mm. Because of their process, I, I, I can't vouch for any other ball whether they're astringent. So then maybe some of the wobbly shots you see, was that me or was it the ball? I don't know. Yeah, Simon, if you could just, for our listeners who yep. might be confused by spin rate, can you talk a bit about the importance of spin rate and what it means to a lower and higher handicap player? Well, yeah, spin rate's more to do with your speed. So you you need to try and get a matchup of your swing speed or your ball speed and the and the amount it's spinning. So the, the faster your ball speed, like a Cameron Champ, for instance, mm. very fast ball speed, he and very low launch, he can get away with both of those and have a low spin rate. So he can go low spin rate, low launch, massive ball speed. Um, whereas someone who's got a slower ball speed needs more speed, more go. spin to keep the ball in the air. That's the and they need to launch the ball higher to keep it in the air. Very good. Uh, and we, we talk about the garden hose effect. If you can imagine with a garden hose, and you're trying to create that perfect launch of the water and see how far it can carry. Well, obviously, if you increase the pressure, the amount of water going through the hose, you can drop the hose line down and get it to drill out 
miles. Mm. But if mm. you if you drip if you reduce the pressure, that's not going to carry as far. Now you have to increase the angle that you're launching the water at. Mm. Uh, if that makes any sense. It but does. the garden hose Very effect good. is a yeah. is is a great way of trying to envisage. Well, that's what I need. And and like I say, you know, it feels absolutely definitely part of it. Sound is a massive part of it. What does it sound like when it comes off the club? Mm-hmm. And then what does the what does the flight look like? When I hit a good one, do, well, how does it fly? Do I like the look of that? Is it too high? Is it too low? Does it look like it climbs? Does it look like it's been shot and drops out of the air, which probably indicates you haven't got enough spin? Um, yeah, so and that's where, to be honest, as a, and I'm a, I've been a golf coach for 36 years, I'd go, go and see someone who can give you some guidance if you're confused. Right, right. <laughs> On that note, Simon, before we go, can you just summarize for us what you're doing at the St. Peter's Academy? Uh, well, we, we're mainly a youth development program based at, at the school here. They set up a golf academy back in 2006, and we work with 170-odd kids, mainly from St. Peter's, but about 40 or 50 from outside. We've got some kids who are at uni. Um, you guys probably know Denzel Iremia. He's been back the last month. He's heading off next week to Corn Ferry uh, Q School. Yeah. So he's been training here for the last four or five weeks. Um, yeah, so we're quite lucky because we've got littlies who get to train and hit on alongside someone like a Denzel who's – aspirational and we got everybody in between boys and girls uh, yeah yeah absolutely yeah we got mm. a good chunk of girls a lot of beginner girls post-covid we had a surge like probably golf around the country's had a surge around the globe uh, a lot more girls get having a crack at it which okay. is brilliant the key mm. then is to keep them in it and make sure they had a good experience so mm-hmm. which that's our job well, Simon, it's uh, been a great pleasure to talk to you, and uh, hopefully we've been able to inform our golfing population of uh, uh, what technology is all about and how it can help them in their golf, and uh, we wish you and all of your uh, staff down there at the St. Peter's Academy. Are you open to the public? If someone from around that area wants a lesson, can they come to you? Yeah, yeah, we do a limited amount of, uh, of outside coaching, yeah, outside our normal stuff. Definitely. There we are, St. Peter's College in Cambridge. Thank you, Simon. Simon Thomas, our guest today. And we'll be back again in a fortnight's time with uh, more from On the Tee. In the meantime, our thanks to JK's World of Golf out there at Auckland International Airport and the Akarana Golf Club, our friends who helped bring this podcast to you. In the meantime, you enjoy your golf and we'll see you and hear from us in a fortnight. You've been listening to On the Tee Golf New Zealand podcast, hosted by Tom Hyde, and Brendan Telfer, proudly presented by Podcasts New Zealand and Gorilla Voice Media. You can find us online at podcasts.nz.co.nz.